0: Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 293, and I had a conversation with Dub Barron. He's a friend of mine. Uh, I was on his show, Curiosity Bites, and asked if he would like to be on my show, and he agreed. And so we had a great time, a big time. Dub's a man of many talents, he wears many hats his mission is of service and helping people I I think the reason he's on the planet is he's helping people figure out how to be their most authentic and best selves we need a lot of that don't we Um, because it can be rough This, this planet's tricky Uh, He's a best-selling author with books like One Red Thread and Fiercely Loyal. That's just two of a lot of books he's written. He's a podcaster, as I mentioned, Curiosity Bites. And then he has another podcast called Leadership and Loyalty. He's a storyteller. He's a therapist. He was named one of the top 100 leadership speakers by Inc Magazine and is a leadership speaker with the United Nations, which is no small potatoes. We talked about all sorts of stuff, so childhood trauma, inner child work, the Kabbalah, the nature of space and time, emotional intelligence, empathy, the lure of bully energy, so much more. There is a trigger warning for this episode. I just want you all to know we talk about trafficking and we talk about child abuse and trauma, so a heads up for that. This is the first episode of 2022. Happy New Year. I took two weeks off for the holiday and for moving. That was an experience. And now I am on the hunt for a new podcast space. I live in a relatively noisy, it's like a house that's divided into apartments and it's, it's not necessarily quiet enough for the podcast so I'm on the lookout I'm excited for new episodes coming up but I was so happy to take time I really needed it I was so needed for New Year's I binge watched Midnight Mass and ate a yummy sandwich and happily jammy socked my way into the new year uh, which was great it was a perfect night Let's hope 2022 has some bright, shiny places. I wish that for all of us. Uh, I know it will. I'm going to have faith. I'm going to just, I know the last couple months have been really intense for the world, but hang in there. Um, We're going to get through it. It's it's been weird, I know, but we're gonna get through it. Okay. In other news, hey, human podcast can be found on social media on Facebook and Instagram. My personal social media is Susan Ruthism. That's on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, You can email me, Susan, at HeyHumanPodcast.com. I'd love to hear what you're up to, what you're doing. Tell me your New Year's Eve, what you did or didn't do. Tell me what you love or don't love about the show. Tell me something you think I should talk about on the show or someone I should have on the show. I answer every email. Just let me know how you're doing out there. I want to know rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'd like to thank everyone who supported and donated to Hey Human in the 2021 calendar year. You really help keep the show alive, keep the lights on, keep it ad free. Uh, Thank you. And thank you everybody for telling your friends and family about the show and helping it spread. It means a ton and I couldn't do this without you. And I'm seeing it grow exponentially and that's because of y'all and just, I'm, I really appreciate it. Thank you for that. If you want to learn more about me, you can go to susanruth.com and find all sorts of stuff about my other creative endeavors, art and music and all that kind of stuff. Uh, susanruth.com also has... Uh, you can sign up on the mailing list there. So uh, I suck at sending the mailing list out <laughs> on any kind of regular basis, but my intentions are pure. They are there and that is something, right? Uh, go to heyhumanpodcast.com and check out the links page. I put tons of info. There for you, and you can do a deep dive on every guest, every subject that I have on the show. So much info it'll keep you busy for hours. And yeah, okay, that's about all I have for business. Let's get into this show. Stay safe, be well, be kind, take care of each other. Okay, here we go. Hey, Susan. Hi, Deb. How are you?
1: Good love. How's things?
0: You know, I just moved, so I'm unpacking and trying to keep my world. A carpet going. next to you? Yeah, it's a uh, uh, Persian carpets that my grandparents got a hundred years ago.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you're using them as a sound uh, as a sound absorption right now?
0: For now, yeah. There's uh sure. yeah. I live next door to a um, elder care facility, and. It's entertaining to say the least, but they they tend to be outbursts and things and Really? So I'm probably going to have to find an external place to do the to do the show because it's just too much noise.
1: Oh wow, really that bad? Yeah, there's this
0: one old guy. He's kind of like the mouse in the clock. He comes out every 20 minutes and paces through the corridor. It's an outdoor cor- corridor court and he paces through And then he generally says a series of expletives, and then he walks back. And he does about every twenty minutes, like on clockwork. It's pretty, it's entertaining. I've tried to say hi to him, but he doesn't really look at anyone or anything. He just does his. I think you should
1: record it and use it as your lead for your show.
0: There you go. It's (laughs) it's interesting, and there's generally it's like
1: you know when it comes in, it's like oh, it's part of the show.
0: Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of old people that argue about one person is convinced that someone else stole all their things and, you know, the general stuff that happens in the decline when what's really sad, though, is that I see all the workers there, but I don't see family ever come to visit these people. And All that's right, sad, especially these that around this time of year. And I think and so the workers, I think, understanding that they play music and dance for the for them. And you know, they're always it's doing crazy. some sort of something. Yeah. The other day it's I came sweet. came home and they were blasting Britney Spears Hit Me Baby one more time. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Oh my god, that's fantastic. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah it's really it's quite the it's Just quite see these old
1: folks going oops I did it again
0: yeah it's just it, but it all it's just heartbreaking and beautiful thing yeah. to, to watch and I live on the top floor of this 1922 house which of course is thin
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> you know thin walls and I and I have a vantage an eagle eye vantage point into the courtyard so I can see all the activity Close. in there and it's just, it's, it's humbling and it's sobering. Uh, it's heartwarming, like I said, but it's also very sad. It's so, it's all the emotions happening.
1: <laughs> right. Pretty wild. Yeah, um, I, it's one of the things I encourage my clients to do. And I say, I don't know if you've heard of this, but there's now a thing called the living library. Most people haven't heard of it. And they go, what is it? And they go, you get to take a person out from the library and they go, what's that? And you go, there's, there's actually libraries now we have people sit there and you can ask them questions about their life. And it's like reading their book. And I said, what if you took your grandparents out of the library? What if you took your dad, your mom out of the library? And the problem is that most people assume that their parents won't tell them. And I say, that's easy. Get your friend to go with you. And don't ask any questions, just prep your friend with the question. And That's be a good helpful. listener.
0: If, if yeah. you just sit there and don't say anything, it's amazing how much people will say. Mm-hmm. Partly because nobody likes silence, I suppose. and But also because it takes a minute for people to articulate what it is, especially if it's a deep felt thing or emotion or uh, experience. I agree with you. I think that's beautiful. And uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, I interviewed my parents for the show for Hey Human. Mm -hmm. It was incredible. After knowing them my whole life, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I learned things about them that I didn't know. Stories I hadn't heard over Thanksgiving dinner or various, you know, drives to places. And
1: you see, that's it, isn't it? That's the other thing. The other sort of assumption is, well, I've lived with you all my life. I know all the stories. No, you don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you don't. You don't. But you go to your parents' funeral and you suddenly hear shit and you're like, why the fuck didn't I know that? Yeah. Why didn't I know that? Right. It's, it's, it's amazing how much you don't know. And we, and it's, and by the way, it's reversed too. So as parents, we don't know a lot about our kids. Well, because you know, I'm like, I often sit down with with my boys or with my daughter and I'll say, just tell me something. And they go like, what? i like, you know, I, I'm just doing the same thing every day. I, and I go, yeah, I know. But Tell me a story. And they go, what, what do you want? I said, so be funny. It can be sad. It can be, you know, just tell me a story. Tell me something you think I know that I probably don't. And it's amazing. I'll suddenly like, Oh, you know, you know, when you, you know, uh, you know, when you lived in the high rise, yeah. And you know, when we all lived there and we did this, yeah. And you called us out for doing that. Yeah. Well, we were doing this. Oh, okay. Now that's really funny because you're not nine anymore. That's really hysterical. At the time, that's pretty, would have pissed me off for sure. But I'm glad like, that's funny things to know, you know. And yeah. it's like, it, it's, I think it's very interesting.
0: And it's the thing about, I'm not looking for what you did as more as I'm looking for who you are, you know, and exactly. the things that touched you or your experiences. It's, it also really humanizes a person. Like, as you said, you know, you talk to your kids, they're your kids. You talk to your parents, they're your parents. But when you ask them who they are, mm. they, they transform and suddenly they're human. When you, and you think, I've been living with a human being this whole time. I had no idea, you know, <laughs> it's great. It's great. Uh,
1: and it's really, really fascinating for me to discover what, uh, what is interesting to that person? What is, what drives them? Mm-hmm. You know? Cause they're not likely to tell the parent, right? You know, uh, my son's wedding a couple of years ago, just before the pandemic, you know, the speeches come and the speeches are great, right? Because there is close mates and they're telling stories. And it was like, yep, we didn't know that. <laughs> yep, we didn't know that. That's great. <laughs> uh, and, and those stories don't reveal, um, just what that person did, but they, as you said, they reveal who they are or who they were at that time. And it's, yeah, it's insightful.
0: Yeah, I love it. Well, hi, Dove, Baron, welcome to Hey Human. <laughs> it's good to see you. Thank
1: you. It's good to be here. <laughs> we had a couple hiccups
0: because you moved, I moved. So we've mm. had some scheduling uh, hiccups, but here we are.
1: We, we finally made it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Are you still in Canada?
1: I'm still in Canadia. Yes, that's exactly how I pronounce it. I'm still in <laughs> Canadia, and uh, I'm still living actually very close to where I was living before. I'm 500 meters from where I was. Um, just uh, we. No one, No one in America knows what that means. Oh yeah, right. Okay, uh, five short blocks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for reminding me of that. five short blocks from where where we lived before, um we needed one level. My wife needs knee surgery and we so we needed one level. We had stairs previously and we needed a little more space. And so now we have more space and uh, uh, it's all one floor and it took a year to find but we're very happy with it. It took, it took us three months to get it organized. Um, we had our first day off. It was not last night I decided before. It's since September. So it kind of gives you a clue of how nutsy it's been, but it's great. We're happy to be here.
0: Moving, I often say, is one of Dante's circles of hell that he doesn't talk about in the book. <laughs> it's definitely true though. It's, it's so much
1: well, I think that also, you know, people forget that it's extraordinarily stressful. You know, it's a stress we don't think about, but it's actually, you know, on the, on the stress scale, it's in the top five, you know, along with death. <laughs> so, you know, which
0: in, seems easier at this moment.
1: <laughs> in a pandemic, it certainly seems easier yeah, getting sure. people organized and getting people to do stuff. So, yeah, you know, we both had a few hiccups, but. You know, we're here now and I'm excited to be here with you and excited to dive into whatever you want to dive into. You well, know my me. rule, ask me yeah. anything. <laughs> That's right. Well,
0: let's, uh, firstly, so, now I was on your show and we talked, yep. we had a great conversation, really enjoyed it. And that was, Thank gosh, you. that seems like a million years ago now, but it was in this past calendar year.
1: Yeah, it was in the summer. <laughs>
0: yeah. Of um, 2021. Yeah. So uh, the thing I usually do on this show, so it, it's sort of the funny thing because now I feel like we're friends and so I know things about you, but I'm going to just assume that my listeners don't. And so we'll start with where is your upbringing? You know, where, what brought you into the
1: world? Uh, my mother's womb. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll start there. Um, I was born in Northern England. Um, in a what today would be considered a ghetto, um, extreme poverty, uh, crime, violence, all those kinds of things around us all the time. Um, it was a bizarre environment because in the daytime every door was open. So in the daytime in the summer there was no do- no locked doors. The doors weren't even front doors weren't even closed, and kids could wander from house to house. But at night you locked everything because that's when the thieves came. Um, so it was, it was a strange environment. It was, you know, if you, if your kid got sick and you had to take another kid to the, uh, you had to take kids to the hospital, you just asked a neighbor to look after your kids and they did. Um, you know, so we were very poor. It was, it was really rough and a uh, struggle. And, uh, I never felt like I belonged there. Now I know that everybody has these. Moments where they go, Am I an alien? Uh, am I from another family? Am I adopted? Those moments. But for me, it wasn't just um, with my family, it was environmentally. I had this drive to, to, to explore. And that was psychological exploration, mythological exploration, scientific exploration, but of course, geographical exploration. I wanted to ex- experience more in the world. And that's what drove me from being a real little kid. And people thought that that was crazy because nobody left where I was from.
0: Are, are your parents still with us?
1: Uh, nope. My, uh, my father died probably, I think, about Six or seven years ago. And my mother died uh, this year, 2021. So my mother mother. passed then. Yeah. Um, So both my parents are gone. Um, But uh, I did not have a relationship with my father. My father left when uh, I was seven, Uh, left us when I was seven. And uh, I came down the stairs in this shitty little um, house. And as I came down the stairs, Narrow hallway, end of the hallway with a doorway, summertime, and there's a figure blocking the light coming out from outside. And I can, you know, I can tell as a kid, I can see it's my dad, but I can't see any details. And I just had a bad feeling and said, Dad, dad. And he, I got to the bottom of the stairs and he turned around and he walked back towards me, crouched down to be kind of at eye level, put his hand on one shoulder of mine, ruffled my hair put his hand on the other shoulder as if to knight me and said, I'm going now. You're the man of the house. Seven years old. Yeah. Thanks. Oh, oh, thank you. Oh, childhood. Let's just pass on that. That's a terrible thing to say to a kid. Of course it is. And, you know, I had a bunch of siblings and my mom who was severely depressed. And so I took that on. I definitely took that on. And uh, so my dad was gone from when I was seven. I didn't see him again until I was, I think, 13 um, and, uh, then only briefly, um, he had gone, he'd moved away, he'd moved to another country. And so, um, I grew up then with my mom and then later on with my stepdad, who I had a pretty horrible relationship with, um, for some pretty horrendous reasons. And, uh, which I don't need to go into, but I can, if you want to. And, um, you know, so sort a of bunch of siblings, my mom, my stepdad, uh, uh, my mom's family didn't really talk to her cause my mom is Jewish and she married out of the faith and, uh, and that didn't go down too well. And, um, my, my dad was, uh, definitely my, my father was very handsome and very charismatic, but a douchebag, you know, definitely narcissistic and, um, you know, Figured if he could get up early in the morning, he could screw the crack of dawn. Um, so, you know, everybody and everything was available to him. So um, my stepfather made my dad look like, an, um, like he had never had sex with anybody. So uh, um, my father was violent. My stepfather was not. My father was not an alcoholic, but my stepfather was a, was a high-functioning alcoholic. So it was an interesting time. Wow. How many siblings? Uh, there's nine of us. I'm the eldest. Wow. But that's not nine in the same sure. family, right? So there's my mom's kids, my mom and dad's kids, my mom and my stepdad's kids, and my dad and my stepmom's kids. But wow. I'm the eldest of all of them. And I was the only one they, they everybody considered their brother until I got healthy. And then when I got healthy, I s- suddenly got moved out a little bit. <laughs> I mean, healthy boundaries. If you have healthy Uh, boundaries, it upsets a lot of people.
0: Sure. Sure. So (laughs) the relationships in the family, given the fact that there was a toxic environment and toxicity gets very comfortable with itself. So as you, as you learned your own boundaries and got healthy, is that what you're saying? That they weren't as interested because you weren't fun drama game anymore?
1: Um, No. uh, Yeah. I mean, certainly I, I was aware of very young age. So at seven, almost eight years old, my mom shipped me off to the rabbis because she thought I was possessed because I would talk about things like on the other side of the veil. And my mom was like, what? What? And I talk about having these encounters with spirit or whatever it was, right? So I sounded like a whack, just a complete wacky kid. So my mom didn't know what to do with that. So she shipped me off to rabbis and I started studying very, very early. That was the beginning of my spiritual path. So I studied with rabbis who actually taught me Kabbalah, which you're not supposed to, in those days, you weren't supposed to learn until you're 42 and you can only be a male. But I was definitely not 42, although I was male. So that was, I began to understand that other realm and for those that,
0: listening, can you explain what Kabbalah is? I don't know. That sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So
1: thank you for asking. Yeah. Um, so Jewish mysticism is the simplest way of understanding it. It's Jewish mysticism. Um, Madonna made it popular in in the sort of uh, general world back in the 90s. And it began to be taught by different people. But it's not taught in what I was learning. It's it's a different version. So um, Kabbalah is based on a book called the Bala Tantra, um, and that's a very, very old mystical piece of work. Um, there were certainly mist- certain mystics in the, in the Jewish faith who were not your traditional Jews who did very different things, and they understand those realms. And, and so they would read Aramaic. If I asked people what religion, what, sorry, what language was the, Bible written in, you know, people might say English and I go, no, that is King James. English is not English anyway, but you know, if you go back, there's actually nine iterations of the language from the biblical text and the biblical text originally was written um, in Aramaic, not even in Hebrew. So it was in Aramaic and that's the ancient language. And so there are not that many people around who speak it, read it, et cetera. My teachers all did. And so I was able to, under, uh, to get understanding around those things. And that was, like I said, that was, that was the birth of my spiritual path. By the time I was 11, I taught myself prana yoga, which is breath yoga. Um, my stepfather gave me a book. He just thought I might be interested in it. And it was for kids and it was prana yoga for kids. I started teaching myself that. And then I traveled the world doing that. I traveled the world to study with different spiritual masters. So I studied Vedanta, which is Hindu philosophy, Buddhism, lived with Buddhist monks, I lived with and studied with uh, the Dean of the Venetian University in Bombay. Um, Buddhism, I studied with uh, Buddhist monks, um, the Tao. Um, some others I sort of dabbled in. And then um, one of my great teachers was an Orthodox Catholic bishop, who was also a Jungian psychologist who um, brought me into Jungian psychology. So, you know, it was a spiritual path that led into a psychological path.
0: When you say that when you were little, you talked about the veil. Mm-hmm. Were you getting visited? Did you see things that others did not? Did the rabbis yeah. understand that?
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So, um the final straw for my mom was we were on a camping trip in Wales um, and in a tent. And so, you know, my mom and my uncle and my stepdad are playing cards in the tent, And I'm on a little sort of bed in the corner. And all of a sudden um, while I'm asleep, I sit up and I go, you know, I mean, I, I don't know, you know, just I'm doing this language, right? And like, but sat bolt upright with my eyes open. And, you know, of course, freaked the shit out of my parents and my uncle, totally freaked them out. You're like, um, and the next morning, my mom asked me, uh, Do you remember your dream last night? And I said, It wasn't a dream. And I said, and she said, what do you mean? I said, um, I was on this long flat land and she said, Oh yeah. What was you, what were you speaking? And I said, hoppy. And she goes, what's hoppy? I said, I don't know. Well, hoppy is hoppy. Right. Um, and, um, so that was it. Like, okay, time to be, yeah, before the head starts spinning and you start <laughs> speaking to Karis, uh, we better, we better, we better, we better get you sorted out. So that was, you know, I was having those kind of experiences. And, and, and when I was a kid, even a little bit older, maybe 10 or 11, um, I was an artist and my art was in galleries by the time I was 10 or 11. Um, and so my mom, this was one of my mom's bragging rights. So, if her friends would come over, she's got to sit down, double draw you. I was like, and they'd be like, Oh, okay. And they sit down and, you know, I would be halfway through and they'd be bored and they'd be like, you know, are you done yet? And I'm like, no. And they'd say, well, let me see it. And I didn't want to show it to them, but then I'd show it to them. And then they go, Oh my God, that's so fantastic. That's brilliant. Wow. You're so talented. And I go, I'm not finished. Sit down. So now they're willing to sit right? Because now they've seen it, that they're inspired. So they sit down and then they see the final version. They didn't like it. Always hated it because what I did was first of all, draw their face. And as a kid, they would then draw what I saw as their soul. Ooh, I can see the shivers. Yeah. So often it was a pretty dark image. Um, I sort of mentioned, uh, some of the things that were going on, but you know, there was a lot of, uh, Weird crimes going on that were around me all the time, including the fact that my stepfather was part of and maybe ran a pedophile ring. So his best friends were all fucking pretty dark individuals, right? So, uh, so I was drawing their souls, and that didn't go down too well.
0: Okay, well, you just dropped a bomb. So, <laughs> wow, that's very intense. Was were your siblings being drawn into that? or was were you because you were part of the family uh,
1: protected from that No, it was me and my sister we were the two eldest we were we were part of it. Uh, my younger brother was we don't think he was, but we're not certain um, then there is uh we had another brother who had been removed from the home for reasons and then Uh, The next two siblings who lived in the house were my stepfather and my mother's kids and they were untouchable.
0: His own children were untouchable, but the eldest children that were,
1: well, you know, think about it this way, right? I mean, here's, here's this angel, this good looking man with money who shows up, meets my mom who was poorer than a church mouse working three jobs just to try and keep the lights on. And I mean, really like, Um, who we could be evicted at any moment every every week. That's how we lived. Um, Suddenly this good-looking guy with a job, with money in his pocket, um, uh, truck driver, had access to all kinds of goodies, and um, suddenly starts dating a woman who's just had another child. So she's now got four kids and takes it on provides her with nice clothing and we've got lots of food in the house and you don't have to worry about paying the rent anymore. He's angelic, untouchable. So being untouchable meant that we, you know, uh, I'm, you know, we've asked my mom if she knew what was going on at close to the end of her life. And she said that she had suspicions, but she didn't want to face them. Uh, now, she never admitted any of that until the very end. Sure. But, you know, it was, you know, I mean, it, for her, it probably felt like a, a respite from the extreme stress of always trying to put food on the table and fill, you know, pay the rent. Um, and I'm not saying it's justified or not justified, but I, I can have some compassion for it. Um, I understand. Uh, but it's uh, it was pretty crazy. Do you think that part was, of her
0: crazy. sending you away was her sending you away was a way to protect you without acknowledging? So, no,
1: no, I don't. I, I think that was more protecting herself. I think okay. she really. don't think she really thought I was possessed. I wasn't. She really did. Okay. Oh yeah, she really did think I was possessed. I mean, and I was um, I was only gone for a couple of weeks, and then I was back, and then I would spend evenings with them. Right? Okay. And then I and then as I got older um i didn't do i wasn't away with them i would do it in in school hours after school directly after school because i had to be home because i cleaned and i um even from being eight years old i had to learn how to clean and cook and do all those things and because i had to take care of my siblings
0: how did you escape that horrible experience
1: um how did i escape it uh
0: well, I mean, when you're young, there's you kind of kids will do a lot because mm-hmm. they they love is love, even if it's yep. hate or violence or whatever. The child yep. is yep. still desperately trying to get that love from their parent. Of course. But at some point you get old enough to realize, wait, this is not OK and break free.
1: Um, so it's kind of. um no, it's not quite how it worked for me. Um, for me, first of all, as I said, I was a very odd child. I was interested in things that other people weren't interested in. Um, while my mates were watching cartoons, I was watching BBC Two. I was, um, and if you don't know what that means, um, it was the intellectual channel in Britain. Um, it was like a PBS might be, you know, so it had on Shakespeare and it had on documentaries and it had on, um, you know, those plays that were televised. And, and I just loved all that stuff. And I was an artist and I was into art and I would watch ballet and I would watch theater and and loved science and documentaries. So that was the road. I, that was my kind of escape. And when I wasn't doing that, I was listening to music because I was a music nut uh and i was hiding out in the in the cellar of the house painting um with whatever i could find so i'd use house paints and you know paint with whatever i could uh, and so i would do that so i was escaping a lot of the time uh, and then uh when i was 10 years old i walked into the living room and i saw my mom crying and That wasn't particularly unusual, but it was like, why are you crying, Mom? I was very protective of my mom. And uh, she pointed at the TV set and said, he's dead. So I looked at the TV set and said, who? I didn't know who that was. I mean, it wasn't a footballer. It wasn't a TV star. It wasn't a movie star that I knew. Um, So who is this? And then I listened and I heard, I have a dream that one day, and I, it was like, suddenly went silent, and I could hear this, and I listened carefully. And then the, I don't know, maybe the next day, I went and asked my uncle, who was kind of like the, he was the uh, intellectual of the family. And I asked him, and I said, you know, who's this? And he told me all about uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, about the Civil Rights Movement, And <clears throat> I was 10, and I could have that conversation. And then he talked to me about um, how he was influenced by Gandhi, and I started to learn about Gandhi, and I became fascinated by that. But what was most fascinating for me was here was my mother, a poor Jewish woman, a poor Jewish white woman in England, crying as she listens to the announcement that a black Christian minister, in, in my context, on the other side of the world, and she's crying. That for me was profound. How, like, So I suddenly had this, this concept of impact that was bigger than your circle of environment, that there's something bigger. And I think that that was the seeds for me of doing what it is that I do. Then when I was 14, I was in the, in, in the living room on a sunny day. And my mom came in and was like, why aren't you outside? And I said, kid, I'm watching this. And she said, what is it? And it was a documentary and she goes, what, what's it about? And I said, I don't know. And she said, uh, well, where is it? I said, I don't know. Um, and the reason was, is because it was filmed over a period of 10 years, but made to look like four seasons. And it was about a girl's journey from the East coast to the West coast as a hitchhiker. And so she said, hey, well, where do you think it is? And I said, I think it's America. And and so you'd see this girl and she meets this guy and then they have a kid. And so it's filmed over 10 years, but it looks, it's filmed in four seasons. And I said, I'm, and my mom said, Oh, it's really beautiful. I said, yeah, I'm going to go live there. And she goes, okay, you know, whatever, right? We don't escape from Broughton. That's where we were born. You don't escape. It's a ghetto. And I made a decision to go. And, uh, so, I did leave the country at 21 years old and began my travels. But eventually, um, I moved to where I am now. And I was living here and um, probably been here three years. And I suddenly went to a place called Stanley Park. And I was in Stanley Park. And as I got to the edge of Stanley Park, I saw all these totem poles and started to cry. I was at a girl at the time and she goes, Why are you crying? And I remembered that the end of that movie, that documentary, it wasn't America, it was Canada, because the last scene is them standing by the totem poles, looking out at the ocean, and where they were lo- looking out of the ocean, and that particular site, where they would have stood, looks directly at where I live today.
0: Clearly, you came into this world an old soul, if you believe in those sorts of things, which I do. Mm-hmm. And that because of that, Anything that you had to endure, I think about this with my own life, anything we had to endure as children, we had the capacity because we somehow understood that those things were happening to this incarnation of a person and not the spirit of the person. Mm -hmm. It's, It's hard for me to explain this question, I guess, but do you think that that helped keep you from completely imploding along the way? that you did have this deep connection to all things and all timelines. It sounds like you were aware of the experience
1: of it. Mm -hmm.
0: Does that make sense? I don't know how to ask this question. Exactly. I
1: I do understand where you're coming from. Um, you know, I'm, I am a deeply spiritual person. I am certainly not a religious person by any stroke of the imagination, but I am deeply spiritual and not in a woo-woo way. Um, but um, I'm also very scientific. Um, I studied a lot of different sciences. You and I talked about that when you were on my show, um, as well as quantum physics and psychology and neurosciences and all those kinds of very cool things that you love to study too, um, along with philosophy and mystical things. Um, and you know, there's a there's a point where you have to you have to jump off from here's the evidence to here's the faith, right? And um, I would love evidence, hard scientific evidence of something after death. I don't have that evidence. Um, And part of my challenge with it is because I think that part of our challenge as humans is that we look at everything in the context of humanity as we know humanity. Now, let me explain that for a moment. So what I mean by that is if you're going to examine something, you're going to have to look through the lenses you have. So what are the lenses you have? You have a three-dimensional reality, a four-dimensional reality. Okay. And then you have on top of that, you have a gravitational field. Okay. You have light within a very small realm of what light is. Um, so that's part of your reality and you have something called time, right? So, okay, well, those are f- very fixed lenses. So let's start with a, uh, an example and say, okay, um, Ospensky talked about if there, if you, if you're a two dimensional creature, so we're four dimensional beings. And if you're a two dimensional creature and you, and you and you live at the bottom of a lake and I jump in that lake you as a two dimensional creature will not see me. You will only see an outline of me because you can only perceive in two dimensions. So is the other two dimensions that you don't see invisible or do you just not perceive them? And so if you now think about six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 dimensions of reality, then you go, Hmm. So I can't perceive them. Doesn't mean they're not real. So that is how that works for me. So now when people ask me, they'll say, well, do you believe in past lives? And I'll say, no. And they'll say, oh, so you don't believe in reincarnation? And I go, yes. (laughs) And they go, huh? And I said, what "What do you mean? I said, because I don't believe in past lives because I don't believe in time. Yeah. And it's all happening all at once. So I believe that I'm in time and I am, I am actively part of time, and I'm aging through time, and I'm experiencing through time, but time doesn't exist outside of that, that perceptual reality. It's, it's a perceptual reality, it's not an actual reality. So, Therefore, my past life might be in the future. My future life might be in the past and they all might be going on right now in a multidimensional reality, uh, you know, because my introduction to quantum physics was you ever at the Third's theory of multidimensional reality. That is where I sit with it. I'm still in that realm that puts it outside of past lives, future lives, demons, angels, or any of that. It's just like, yeah, it's all going on. And it's kind of a multi-layered cake, And, um, and I, you know, I teach this exercise as an exercise I teach to my clients when I explain the timeline thing and I say, so what if you started to hang out with your child self, which I've done, I spent a lot of time hanging out with my little boy. Um, and people like, well, is that in your imagination? I go, well, you can think of it that way. Of course, for me, it's not. Um, I can remember clearly when I met my wife, and I said to her, listen, this is might seem weird to you because my wife was the daughter of a Christian minister, a preacher. And so she'd never encountered any of that stuff. So I told her about some of my background, which was kind of like mouth falling open moment. (laughs) And then I started talking about my little boy. And I said, uh, and I said, you can never get in the way of that. She says, what do you mean? I go, that's my first relationship. That has to be the priority. And so I asked her to discover her little girl, which she did. And she did some great therapy work and she did some great work. And my wife's now highly trained in that world. Um, But we got to know each other's little kids. And so one day she had just moved in with me. uh, So we'd probably been together about seven or eight months. She just moved in and we were... I I went down to get the car and I pulled up in front of the building and she came down. Now, when I drive in the car on my own, my little boy sits in the passenger seat. I visualize him there. I see him there. He used to choose the music to play and some of the music he likes. I don't particularly like, but he likes it. So we play it. And so um, he was, he was uh, playing the music and, and I, cause I'm sitting waiting for my wife to come down or my girlfriend at the time to come down. And suddenly I, I saw my wife coming out of the building and I went like this on top of my little boy's head. You know, how you ruffle a kid's hair. I went like that on top of his head. Remember he's very real to me. And I know that people looking at him. I think, you know, this guy's weird, but I'm just doing that. And, and I said, okay, you got to get in the back, right? Cause Ren's here. And she opened the door and when she opened the door, I was crying and she goes, are you okay? And I said, I'm better than okay. I'm getting choked now telling you about it. And she said, why? And I said, he's safe. And she goes, what do you mean? I said, I ruffled his hair and his hair was soft. And she goes, okay. And I said, she said, I don't understand. I said, when we were kids, it we was only cold water, and there was something called carbolic soap, which is industrial soap. It's used by in, uh, in industry. That's all we had. It's all we could afford. So when you washed your hair with it, my mom used to say I had hair like shredded wheat, right? Because it was like that hard from the carbolic soap. And so when I ruffled his hair and it was soft, I said to him, your hair's so soft. And he said, yeah. And I said, why? He goes, I used Wren's shampoo. And I started to cry because he was, that meant he was safe with us. He was safe, not just with me, but with her. And, and, you know, that was the moment I felt like he came home and he could be here and he could be safe with me. And so I still have him with me and, you know, I, I keep him very real in my reality. And what that does is it gives me compassion for the childhood he had It helps me to help him to get past his developmental stages, you know, from a psychology point of view where he might've got developmentally stuck. He's grown out through that now. Um, But that's through embracing that rather than trying to reject that. Or, you know, Oh, that's in the past. Bullshit. Your past is, is leaking all over your present and polluting your future. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So address it.
0: Yeah. I've done a lot of the work. It's so beautiful. Uh, The, the work of the, with the kids for me um I I have a couch and every time uh and so I have little versions of me and when I encounter them it's they're not like ride or die they're they're always with me but not as 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 much as you're describing but they show up and I find out when I have, I'm tripping over my tongue here, when I have an emotional response to something that seems beyond what would be a normal response, I go back inside myself. And I say, okay, which, which one of us is this that's having this response? And then generally, I am I meet up with a version of me as a young child. And we have a conversation and I tell them, You know, I tell me that I'm safe and I've got my back and that it's okay, and that whatever happened was not their fault, you know, all that stuff. And then I take them into this. uh, It's a giant movie screen and there's a movie playing and there's little versions of me and they're all like ones in pajamas, ones wearing a monster suit. They're all in different incarnations and outfits and they all sit on the couch and eat popcorn and eat candy and hang out and they're all loved. It's sort of like my own little um lost boys I guess in some ways. But they're not That's lost beautiful. anymore. It's the opposite. They're the unlost girls.
1: That's beautiful. So that, I that, 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 that is it's beautiful and and it's it's vitally important. You know, so in my work around emotional source code, you know, th- that child part of you, and you're right, it's multiples, uh, that the, the children part of you hold the source code for whatever it is you're experiencing or however you're perceiving a thing. And by going to source, and that's not some woo-woo religious idea of source, but that's the source of my emotional uh, bedrock, um, I can find out the rationale that was real and is real to that part of me. Yeah. Right. And so that's, you know, so again, we get compassion for ourselves. We get compassion for others and develop, uh, you know, but it can only be done, can only be done with a deep sense of curiosity. And so, you know, I mean, you know, that it's, it's right behind me in, in my, on my screen, but it's, Without curiosity, I think my belief is the world falls apart. All the problems we have are just latent in the; they're embedded in this idea that that we know something, and there's nothing else to know, and that's the problem. We've got to get really good at being curious about the things we think we know, we know or that we could know more about, and the things that we've made up our mind about that I've got nothing to do with reality.
0: I think a huge impact of curiosity is understanding that when we, that it's okay to not know something and it's also okay to be wrong about something.
1: Absolutely right. It, it, and that's the key that last one, because if you really want to upset somebody, make them wrong. Right. And, so, you know, I mean, we'll fight to the death about being right. I mean, people get divorced over being right and being wrong. Not because there's a morals value, not because there's an ethics value, not because there's a, a difference in what matters most to that person, but over being freaking right. Like, does it matter that much? Honest to God. Like, come on. So the, the key is, you know, one of the techniques we teach couples, my wife and I teach couples around this, is what we call the 1% rule. And the 1% rule is very simple is, you know, I, and I usually say like this, if you're married or in a long-term relationship, you have no doubt had moments where you were certain that your partner was insane. <laughs> there's no doubt about it. Right. And I'll look at my wife and I say, yep. You know, and she look at me and go, yep. Like, so, you know, there's moments where you think your partner's lost the plot. They're completely crazy. Because they're saying you did this or you were that way. And you're like, I wasn't. So it seems very black and white, right and wrong. They're wrong. I'm right. She's lost the plot, you know, time to get her a self-hugging jacket and take her off in a little padded wagon, right? (laughs) And so then you apply the 1% rule. And the 1% rule is what if she's 1% right? So now let's change her to the person who is on the other side of the political forum from you, right? You are pro-vax, they're anti-vax. You are pro-Trump, they're anti-Trump. doesn't matter what it is. What if they're 1% right? What if the flat earthers are 1% right? Like push yourself into the ideas that seem insanely wrong and go, what if the 1% right? What might that 1% be? Well, it's, there isn't one. Then good. Now you know what to be curious about. Now explore that 1%. Now I'm going to have a conversation with you and go, oh, I'm looking for that 1%. I can even tell you. This seems crazy to me. It seems like totally wackadoo, but I want to find that 1% where I can kind of see where you're coming from. Now I'm open. Now you're not, Now you're not trying to prove yourself. You're just having a conversation with somebody who's curious about you. And so the 1% rule is the rule I use for every interview I've done over the years, you know, for the last 15 years of every, my shows, um, it's what I use in my marriage every day. It's what I use with my clients. It's what I use in my business. It's like, sometimes people are completely crazy and wacky. And by the way, I'm, I'm people too. Um, and let's apply the 1% rule through that. We'll have compassion. We'll have empathy, and we'll have a deeper understanding that allows us to engage in a deep sense of curiosity. Questions are about people being right or wrong, and people say to me, "Oh, you mean curiosity? You got to ask better questions." And I'm like, "Yeah, but that's not it." And they go, "Why?" Because questions. So when you ask a question, somebody's going to be right and somebody's going to be wrong. And they go, "Well, what's the difference?" With curiosity, there's, it's about a deepening of understanding. So when you give me an answer, it's not the end. It's the now the beginning of a journey. I go deeper. Well, tell me about that. Well, what is it about that? I don't understand that. Help me understand that a bit more. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Why do you go down that road? All right. So it's not right, wrong. It's just deeper and deeper and deeper.
0: It's a different skill set. It's, it's a listening skill set versus mm-hmm. uh, waiting for you to be done just so I can say whatever it is that I think or feel about a thing. And it does... When I have conversations with people, politics, of course, is always going to be a a great example of this because, Mm -hmm. you know, I have conversations with people and they say, well, I don't even want to know why they think that they're just stupid and wrong and ignorant. Well, granted, there's a lot of ignorance around stuff, um, but you saying, I don't even want to know why they think that we're never going to get anywhere. None of us. Because if you don't know the heart of a thing, you will never be able to untangle it and and smooth it out. And it will always be a jumble to you. And right. we will always be a jumble. Well, but I, mean, I don't know that humanity is, is, we're we're a young species. And sometimes I, but it, that's, we talk about the timeline and being very old and ancient and, and otherworldly and all that. And I believe in all those things. But then I look at, us here on earth in the now, whatever the now is that we're perceiving. And wow, we just seem young. <laughs> we just seem to be chasing our own tails and getting everything upside down. The stuff that's important to us that takes us so far away from ourselves.
1: I think that part of the challenge, um, as you know, as you've talked about before, is just this, this need to be right and until we can move that out of the way we're always going to be struggling so and that need to be right you know in a developmental stage um so there's two stages where that's most uh most pronounced um in the second stage of development um which is often referred to as the terrible twos the, the key word that child will use is no, right? And, and no is just, I'm not you, right? It's I'm not you. So the no is, I, I want to individuate, okay? The second stage of where that shows up is in teenage, teenage years. And in teenage years, it's, it's not I'm not you, it's I'm not your beliefs, so it's, I'm, I'm not you for sure, but I'm not your beliefs. So you're Catholic. I'm not going to church. You're a Jewish. I'm not going to, I'm not going to synagogue. You're a Muslim. I'm not going, I'm not going to temple. Right? So there are a million ways, you know, you're a Republican. I'm going to become a Democrat. You know, you're a Democrat. I'm going to become a Republican. We just need that desire to individuate. The problem is that when we do that, we can get attached to it. Instead of understanding that it's a transitional process, an evolutionary process, part of our personal subjective evolution. And so we get attached to it. And now because we're attached to it, it becomes attached to our identity, which is our ego. And so as a result, we will fight, we will die for that identity. And that comes from, I got to make you wrong, because if I don't, then I might be an idiot because I believe this. Right. So as you know, I did a lot of work around uh, de-radicalization and cults and getting people out of cults and cult psychology. And that's that's the key. That's one of the key parts of de-radicalization is understanding these people are not wrong and everybody wants to make them wrong. Right. You know, when I look at the 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 Kyle, what was his name, Kyle? R- Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse. And I watched that kid. And I'm like, Jesus. And now he's doing the tour. He's doing the circuit. He's on the speed. T- I'm like, oh my God. You're just like, they are just playing into an ego identity and they're going to, m- like, I don't think this kid's had a clean thought in his head ever. Right. And he sure as hell hasn't got one now. You know, people are talking about him being a hero. Yeah, no, no. So one of the things I talk about is, um, I talk about conscious courage and unconscious courage. Uh, and so unconscious courage, let's just talk about that for a minute. So you've all, we've all seen the news show with the person who rushed into a building that was on fire and saved the dog or saved the kids or whatever it was, right? You know, oh, and then the news teams outside and like, oh, it was such a courageous act and wow, you know, blah, blah, blah. And this person says, I'm not a hero. It wasn't courageous. And we all go, no, no, you were a real hero. Well, actually, they weren't. It's called unconscious courage. Unconscious courage is a pretty much a knee-jerk response. I'm not dismissing it. I'm in no way uh, demeaning it. You know, it is a courageous act, but it's not coming from a place of conscious courage. It's an unconscious desire to preserve life or to do something good, but, you know, it's not... Oh, let me think about this. I'm going to run into 400 degrees, potentially burn myself to death in order to do something. Because if you went through that conscious process, you'd probably go, forget it. I'm out. <laughs> yeah. I'm going for a coffee around the corner. Uh, where's the nearest Starbucks? I'm out. You know, So conscious courage is very different. Conscious courage requires us to be cognitive, It requires us to have an evaluation process. It requires us to understand all the negative consequences of our action and still be willing to do it. I could step out on that stage and I could be humiliated. So somebody might say to me, oh my God, you're so courageous. You speak in front of 10,000 people. And I go, no, it's not courageous. It was, but it's not anymore because I don't think of it that way. I don't think of it that way at all. But for you, who's never done that, yeah, of course you need to wear a diaper. You're going to be shitting yourself, right? It's going to be scary. But for me, courage would be um, organizing my desktop, right? And you go, well, that's easy. No, for you, it's easy. So, so courage is both subjective and it's conscious. There's unconscious courage, which is you do things by knee jerk. And the subjective courage, which is, I, this is difficult for me, but I am willing to do it. So when we look at these things, and, and then we start panning people on the back for unconscious courage, they then get that stuck into their identity. So I'm very, personally, you know, this is my opinion, I'm very concerned for young Kyle. I'm actually very, very concerned for him. I think he's, he's being brainwashed in a way, not because people are trying to brainwash him, but he's being brainwashed by a media image of himself. And it's like being a child movie star.
0: I was just going to say that child movie stars growing up talk about this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's the path he's on. And so for me, I'm like, you know, I can see Kyle seven, eight years down the road, either being a full blown political loudmouth. Um, who is senator. a puppet,
0: Yeah, <laughs>
1: right? you know, it was, it was a Senator and a puppet, yeah. um, who has never had an original thought in his life and he's just regurgitating and doesn't even know it's not his until he, until he hits that wall, whatever that wall is, or he suddenly hits that wall and then goes, okay, drugs and alcohol are the answer. Like, cause I got to find an escape route. Um, so I'm very concerned for him. I am very, very concerned for him. A lot of the people I see in politics today, for me, because of my understanding of it, I just see traumatized children.
0: I talk about See, yes. What Think what you, some people are on the Trump team. Some people are very much not on the Trump team. I am not on the Trump team. However, <laughs> when throughout all of this, do I, I, I see this tiny, sad broken child that's all I see when I look at him and I've often said through the past six years he challenges my empathy bone to the very limits of its existence he really does I don't have to like him but I do understand what's going on there do I think that gives it a pass? No. Do, does it make me agree with it or anything like that? No. Do I support that stuff? No. But I I have empathy for the broken child that is just wailing, crying. And it's so interesting, too, because I know to make fun of him, they, they did those big Trump baby balloons. And I was like, wow, that's ironic because... They're seeing it in one perspective, but I'm actually seeing him as a a child who probably wasn't touched a whole lot, probably didn't get told that he's loved a whole lot. And it's not hippy dippy. I mean, these are this is science. Children need (laughs) touch, they need affirmation, they need love. It it makes them, it turns them into sociopaths, you know? I mean, that's reality.
1: I I wrote a piece called um, Decoding Trump Years Ago, before he got elected. Um, We spoke about uh, Trump briefly when I was talking at the UN about the the radical right and what was going to happen. And I've written several pieces about him. And uh, the challenge is if you step back away from the political uh, opinion and you look at the history of the man, and I've studied him extensively. um, So first of all, if you go back into family of origin, into his source code, then you see that his father was a narcissistic sociopath and very cruel, very, very cruel individual. Um, And Donald Um, if you look at the childhood stuff, Donald was the most sensitive of all the children. You can see that now,
0: but you can see that now in him as an adult, people are like, oh, he doesn't care about anything. I'm like, oh my God, I've never seen somebody care so much about so much.
1: Right. So he was the most sensitive of all the children. His older brother, Fred, who was his father's, you know, next in line Fred junior, um, had a dream and the dream was to become a pilot. Right. And uh, you know, and his father described that as being a bus driver in the sky, completely demeaned it, and wailed on him, um, physically beat him, and emotionally uh, and verbally, like the level of emotional, verbal violence that kept rained down on Fred that turned him into an alcoholic, um was insane. <clears throat> now, on top of that, Donald, being the sensitive kid, would get shut down and not touched um, every time he was emotional in any way, shape, or form. Um, The mother was terrified of the father, so she never showed affection in the father's presence. The father never showed affection. So Donald learned to shut it all down. Example, when his brother died, people say, how could you possibly go to the cinema? He went to a movie. When the announcement of that Fred Jr. died, he went to a cinema. Why wouldn't he? I, people, I'm like, people say, why would he do that? That's terrible. I'm like, why wouldn't he? And they go, why? It's a dark theater. He can go and have a cry. It's probably the only place he felt safe to have a cry. So he has been trained into narcissistic, sociopathic behavior.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and the problem with that is because it's in his source code, he's now done exactly the same to his own children. Right. So the sensitivity has been knocked out of them. Don Jr., when the mother and father divorced, Don Jr. had wanted nothing to do with his father because he knew that his father raped his mother. His mother wrote about it. Um, she got bet, paid out to retract that statement, but she did say it. And Don Jr. believed her and he would have nothing to do with his father. Well, who is Don Jr. now? Right. It's the same path, so it's a very, very interesting thing for me to look at it non-politically. It's nothing political about what I just said. What I'm talking about is child psychology. I'm talking about attachment theory. I'm talking about neuroscience, and I'm talking about psychology. That's right. All those things are sciences. You can go look them up, right? And so that's what creates a Donald Jr. Now, uh, Donald, see, uh, Donald, and then Donald Jr. Now, if you add to that. Um a bunch of wounded kids hanging around with a bully, which is what he's become. Who hangs around the bully? Well, right. the people who are afraid of being bullied. So, as a quick example, in my own life, I was in my I think I was 26 or tw- yeah, I was 26. I was living in Australia where I lived before I came here. And um my my girlfriend's friend had been over, Jenny. <clears throat> And after Jenny and, and, and Jeff left, uh, those are the couple, they left. And, you know, I'd had a great night. I had a fun night. And, you know, and my girlfriend was kind of pissy with me. I didn't know why. I'd had a good night. I thought maybe I'd had a, too much to drink or something. I didn't know why she was upset. And the next day she says to me, Jenny's not coming over again. And I'm like, why? I don't understand. What's the matter? She goes, you're really upset. I'm like, but I really like Jenny. She knows that. We're always laughing and joking together. She goes, No, you're not. And I said, We are. I see her laughing. She goes, No, she's afraid of you. I go, What? She goes, You really hurt her feelings. And she's afraid of you. I, I, I don't understand. I cannot understand. So I, being me, went and confronted Jenny, right? And probably scared her because I didn't have a lot of the subtleties in those days. And, you know, but I tried. And I said, You know, like Val tells me that I really scare you and that I upset you. And she goes, you're an asshole. And I went, what? I thought you and I had the same sense of humor. And she goes, no, you're, you're a bully. You're mean. And she, and, and I went home and I bawled and I cried and cried and cried. And I just was like, so devastated that I had done so much hurt and didn't know. And then realized oh my God, I've become him. My Zeta, my, my grandfather on my mother's side was, he had a black belt in verbal violence. He could cut you to the bone and laugh while you bled. Um, and he had lots of people who surrounded him because they were afraid of him. Right. They didn't want to be on the other end of that. So they surrounded themselves with the bully and that's what happens. And I, and I made the decision that then that's not my humor. I mean, I thought it was, and I walked around feeling like, oh my God, I have no sense of humor anymore because I couldn't just lash out at people. And it took me a while to find my own sense of humor that wasn't that, and I'm really glad I did. Um, but I was just acting out from what I'd learned. I was learning, I learned to be a bully because I lived with my grandparents for, for a while during the craziness at home. Um, and that was when my mom helped me get out, um, so I live with them, but, you know, I went from the frying pan into the fire, a different kind of fire for sure. Right. Um, it's the hurt but, people, hurt people. Yeah. But, you know, in fairness, um, my grandfather was way kinder to me than he was to anybody. Uh, and the reason for that is because I was wicked smart. And so when he throws shit at me, I whip back, you know, at 10 or 11 years old, I would whip stuff back at him. And he, and he liked that, right? That I could stand up to him, particularly as a kid. So he was much nicer to me, but I'd watch him just thrash my uncle, who was nine years older than me, and just eviscerate him. He'd eviscerate my grandmother and anybody else. And and so that bullying was out of his insecurities. He was now bullying everybody else. So now if you've got a bunch of wounded kids who happen to be in the Senate or Congress, hanging around with a bully, what are they going to do? They're going to imitate the bully so he doesn't turn on them. And these are the same people who prior to the bully's arrival said, this man is disgusting. He is, uh, doesn't uh, represent this party or what we stand for. And now whatever he does is golden. Well, of course it is because they're afraid of the bully. And what's more is they've inspired a bully mentality in, in their constituents and so bullies are gathered. Uh, so those who feel that that little bit of a, a repressed uh, anger and rage, and they want somebody to bully, they hang out with the bullies. And so and those bull- the bigger bullies hang out with the big bully, and so it's a bully situation.
0: I agree one thousand percent. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> you're welcome.
1: <laughs> but you know,
0: but I do. I agree. It's exactly what it is, and and it it's that thing. Is that I can hide underneath the wing of the broken bird because my wings are broken. And if I'm hiding under the wing of the broken bird, but that bird has such a sharp beak that nothing can come near it, then I'm safe. You know, and it's it's so sad. The whole thing is so sad. And every once in a while, I think someone's going to someone's going to stand up and be like, nope. And then that person will be strong enough that all the bullies will then, or all the people that are being protected by the bully will turn and go, Oh, we'll go over there. But I haven't seen that happen. I don't know. It's happened in little glimpses, but nobody has stuck to it.
1: Well, Liz Cheney's done it. She's done it. True. But, you know, Liz Cheney is not exactly a healthy human being. Like, no. You know, let's, let's not forget her, her history. Of course. Like we're putting her all in the present tense, you know, um,
0: it would take a but, Trump to do that, though. It's interesting that it's a Trump that stands up to a Trump because in it just, again, politics aside, we're just talking psychology here. It's, it's the only person really that could have done it.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the truth of the matter is there's a much bigger global picture here that most people um, have not even considered. Well, you know, I think of so, Putin
0: as the biggest bully of them all.
1: Right. So you've got, you've, uh, you've got uh, Putin certainly is a great example of it, but you've also got Bolsonaro in Brazil. Mm-hmm. You've got Rod, uh, Rodrigo, what's his last name, uh, in, in the Philippines.
0: you got Kim uh, Jong-un.
1: So you've got, you've got him. And then there's a bunch of them all over. Hungary's leader. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got um, the Boris rising isn't great. Boris isn't great. You've got the rising right in France that is coming up so fast um, that, um, that Macron only just beat them out. Right. You've got the rising right in Greece. Right. And so what is this? All of this is there's a socioeconomic process that's going on that people are not paying attention to. So we had globalism and, and neo, uh, neoliberal, poli- neoliberal economics which was, in theory, wonderful. We're going to have a free world and everybody's going to be able to be raised out of poverty. But, of course, most of the money ends up in one place and not in another, and this is disparagement. Now, in a global economy, um, you are buying your shirt for $9 because somebody in Vietnam who's 11 is working on that shirt. Okay, and you think, oh, this is great, this is the global economy, blah, blah, blah. And then you realize, oh, we have no jobs in this country. Okay, so we need to shut the walls down. And now you get a brain drain. So, for instance, what people don't know is that that something like 40% of 40-year-old Japanese men are virgins. Yeah. Um, and the population of Japan is likely to disappear within 50 to 100 years because they're not procreating.
0: They're not. Right? And not only that, but they they... They're so starved for for touch, physical intimacy, that they, they don't even know how to do it anymore. Right.
1: They so have they're clubs. having sex with freaking robots. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and as you said earlier, you know, we're all, we need touch. That's not woo-woo, as you said. That's science you can go and look at what happens to children who are deprived of science. I remember citing those experiments from 1979. Yeah. I was in the seventies. Yeah. Right. From Bulgaria with all the kids who were ended up in the massive homes who were untouched and how they became mentally challenged and way behind and all kinds of things. Your brain doesn't develop properly without touch. Now you grow up in a family where you've got a bully who's a parent or two bullies who are parents and you've got no touch. Well, good luck at being sane, right? There's a lot of stuff in the way of that. And so all of these things are now spreading globally. And so what you're going to get with that is you're going to get more tribal locked in behavior as you get more tribal locked in behavior, more protectivism, right? Aside from anything else, you're also going to get a brain drain. So let's look at how many people receive the Nobel prize who were American over the last 20 years. There's a lot. A lot of them got it. How many of them were born in America? Very few. (laughs) Well, what do you do when you got a brain drain? Right? Because now you're American who came in from Persia or uh, from Iran, or you're American who came from India or Pakistan or one of those, quote, shithole countries. Suddenly, you don't have that brain power, and now you've lost your economic edge. Because that's your economic edge. Oh, well, now what do we do? Well, well, we'll all move to the metaverse. Great. In the metaverse, what are we doing? Well, I'm having sex with my partner in the metaverse who is so hot and maybe looks like a Japanese anime, um, but is actually a bricklayer from Brixton in London. Um, and there's still no touch going on, but I think I'm in a relationship. And my brain is not functioning properly. Because I'm not getting touch and I'm not going outside and I'm staying inside and I'm not moving. I mean, there's so many moving parts that are moving at high speed speed far greater high speed than they were even as little as 20 years ago
0: yeah it's terrifying the whole metaverse thing that that was to me a death thought, <laughs> oh god humanity really has jumped the shark when that becomes but I mean things like Second Life have been around forever right and people have again those sort of uh, those player games where you're immersed I don't know maybe they're called immersion games but where you're in it for months at a time and people have died playing video games because they never even sit up from their from their consoles it's bonkers it's so bonkers
1: yeah we've we i mean the the key to it all is that we need to understand that our greatest resource is our humanity and and that means to actually give a shit about each other. But, that, and, but in fairness to everybody, that is difficult because I know, because I came from it, that is difficult when you are living in a state of survival. You're just looking at, at keeping your family safe. And if everything around you is reiterating threat, yes, then you're in survival mode all the time. You're in the limbic mammalian brains the entire time.
0: It's been carefully curated. We are constantly given a barrage of be afraid, be afraid. And I, I don't care if it's about COVID or the enemy or communism or socialism or the right or the left or somebody's blowing up something or break-ins. Or The thing is, is you go outside and people smile at each other when you walk by them. You know, people are inherently the, I think there is more good in the world but good doesn't sell. And we are broken. Humans are broken. We we all come with trauma. Mm-hmm. You can be in the best family in the world and I'm still going to be able to go well, I could probably find some trauma in there somewhere. You know, it's it's in, it's, in, it's in it's inescapable. On a planet with 7.8 billion people to not feel horribly alone. It's, it's just the way it is. And I remember when I interviewed the KKK grand dragon guy, he's the, the broken wing looking for the ones with the two broken wings and maybe the broken foot or whatever. And hate feels like love. Anger feels like love. Anger feels like hope. Hate feels like hope.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, anger feels like hope because, um, it's a sense of having some connection to a state of power in That's your right. powerlessness. So, you know, if I'm angry, I can, I can, uh, I can do something. I can go somewhere. I can, you know, um, rather than being passive. And, and I, by the way, in my work, I'm always looking for that. I'm looking for that, but I'm looking at how to transform it. Not how to and want to tap it to transform it, of not course. tap it and go into it. Right. But, you know, you know, we know this from psychology and I teach this even in, in my marketing psychology work, which is if you don't have an enemy, nobody's getting on board. That's one of the things that Trump did brilliantly. Absolutely. He found an enemy and he stayed to it. And, 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 and here's the other thing for people to understand around this is, you know, we talk about how Trump has divided the country, but division creates connection and people are like, well, isn't division the opposite of connection? No, no, no. So let's just take a moment and just consider one example, (laughs) just one example. Yeah. Uh, Trump was elected and in, in November, in January, a million women put on pussy hats and marched on Washington. So I asked in an interview, I said, who is the most powerful influencer of the women's movement? Who has been the strongest person to bring them together? And, you know, Glorious time and blah, blah, blah. No, Donald Trump. Yeah. Because they had a clear enemy. And so the enemy is important because we're most of us too lazy to get off our asses and do anything about it until it's serious enough, right? You know, I'm, I'm waiting for women to unify, which they've not, around the Roe versus Wade thing. It's still pretty passive for me. When I think about all those women who marched on Washington- and I go, okay, where's the Roe vs. Wade march? Where, where is that? You're talking about women's rights. And, and okay, where's the action? So clearly, they're not pissed off enough about it yet. And here's why. It's not real. Just like climate change is not real. It's only real when it hits you. Where I live in Vancouver, one hour from me, less than an hour, 45 minutes from me, is a place called Abbotsford. It's, it's in a flat, and it got flooded With crazy weather, they had to evacuate a city, and that water went across the number one highway that goes from west coast to east coast Canada. You know, we're talking about a city. We're not talking about a little village city. In the summertime, we had we had towns that literally disappeared because of the fires. They they got incinerated because of the fires. And in the in this winter, we've had cities that have been completely flooded. You can argue that there's no climate change. And i and I have to say, I, I think you're pretty much an idiot. Now, if you want to argue why there's climate change, I have no problem with that. So you want to say it's man-made or it's not man-made. I can listen to both those arguments, but you can't ignore the evidence that there's more hurricanes, more floods, blah, 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 whatever it is, more droughts. So let's just go to that for a minute and go to, okay, how many people changed their mind about climate change when their backyard got flooded? Nothing's real till it's real. So the Roe versus Wade thing is real if you're in Texas, but it's not that real if you're in Portland. It's not that real if you're in California. It's not that real if you're if you're in some other state, New York. So it's like eh, whatever. And this is the problem. Human beings are brilliant at justification, <laughs> and we mostly can justify. I think it's our number one skill. We can justify anything. I wrote about it when I wrote about what I called the good Germans, the good Germans of Germany. When Hitler and, and the, uh, the right world rising in Germany, how many good Jewish Germans who owned businesses said, eh, he'll blow over. This is a Meshuggah, he'll pass by, it will be fine. Like Germany's a good country, this is our home, it's been our home for hundreds of years, we'll stay in. And those people went to the camps. How many good Germans who were non-Jewish who said, yeah, but you know, this will pass by. It'll go away. No, nobody's going to, we'll, we'll take care of our Jewish friends. You know, we don't feel like that. And those people ended up giving service to the Nazi party. And if you see the letters and I've read these letters, they are mind blowing from guys who worked in the camps as soldiers, you know, um, Hello, Gertrude. How are you today? You know, it's been a hard day here. You know, please give my love to, you know, in the name of the children, tell him I hope he's doing well at school. You know, very normal. Uh, You know, you'd be really proud of me uh, today. We had 700 extra units come in that we had to process, but we all did it and we we all stayed online and we made sure that we got through our workload. Units are people coming off trains that are going to be executed, but it's all very perfunctory. How do we do that? Because human beings are brilliant at rationalization. That is our, that is what makes us survive, but it's also our greatest downfall. Yes. Yeah, as long as
0: it's yeah, yeah. happening to someone else, then it's okay. I,
1: well, even, I, even if it's happening to us, you know, you're shooting that heroin in your arm, but I used to hang out in the back streets of Vancouver. That was part of my work as a human. Uh, and I would go and sit in the alleyways with drug, drug users and they go, what, what do you want? And, you know, I'm not here for anything. And I just sit, I'm just here to talk to you. And I, and, what are you doing? we going to preach, you know, church. No, no, I'm not here to judge you. I'm just here to have a convo and I sit and talk with them and I'd say, how long have you been doing heroin? And, you know, I don't know 20 or 15 years or 10 years or whatever. And I go, yeah, how do you feel about that? And you go, do you think I don't know this shit will kill me? Of course I know this shit will kill me. So I said, well, how do you do it? Well, if you know this shit's going to kill you, how do you do it? Well, it's better than the pain I'm in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We are masterful at justifying anything. Yep. Anything.
0: And as long as we don't have to touch our own pain. We can find a conduit for that pain so we don't have to touch it or, but you know, we'll, we'll keep moving forward. I talked to a woman yesterday, lovely woman, and she just found out she's pregnant from a casual experience and she's not going to keep it. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, thank God you live in a state where you can make that choice freely. Mm -hmm. And she said, "Oh and she, her response was, Oh my god, yes! And from now on, I'm going to donate the hell out of all those places.
1: And right. i was like, that's great.
0: Right. And I thought to myself, I was like, I wonder why she didn't donate beforehand. <laughs> you know, and it's exactly what you're saying. Yeah, right. Because
1: yeah, it's not real till it's real.
0: Yeah. Poof. So
1: okay, no, it's subjectively real. <laughs> These
0: are all my favorite kinds of conversations. And I love knowing you because I know that we will dive into the deep end of the pool instantly, which is great. I want to uh, let's talk about like your podcast. Let's talk about your work. Explain to everyone your life's mission now as we see it.
1: Um, Well, my, my personal purpose is to impact the lives of those whose name I will never know and who will never know my name. So it's, it's got nothing to do with my ego. Um, It's got to do with connecting people to their soulful purpose on life by accessing their emotional source code. To discover the anatomy of meaning for them, subjective anatomy of meaning. So the work that I do is with individuals, it's with companies and organizations, and even with nations, I can show them what the emotional source code of a nation is. Um, Because the person who controls the meaning controls the crowd. So this is how Trump did what he did. He controlled meaning. So if you interviewed the people who this is an example of you know, uh, national source code. So if you interviewed the people who uh, marched on January the 6th, uh, 2021 uh, and marched onto the Capitol, it's easy to say, well, they were a bunch of crazies, but that's not true. I'm, I'm certain there were some crazies in there, but, but that's not saying that everybody was a crazy. So how did they get people to do that? Um, people who today by the way, many of whom today are like, you know, I just, I don't know why I did it. I just, I was, you know, I thought I was being patriotic. And if on that day you'd have interviewed anybody in that crowd, is this an act of patriotism? Everybody would have said yes. Yep. So what is, so you then say, okay, so what is the patriotism about? And the answer would have been they're threatening our freedom. That would have been the answer because the source code of America as a country is freedom. That's our number. So when you source code always comes down to one word and for America, it's freedom. There's an internal source code and an external source code. The internal source code is how the country sees itself. The external is how the rest of the world sees the country in a national sense. So by playing on that source code of freedom, they can get people to do anything, anything they want. Now let's take us So people go, oh, okay, well, does it work? Is it always true? Yes. So source code doesn't change. And they go, well, all right. Well, is there another example that's not that? I go, yeah, let's think of another one. Um, you're familiar with a speech called I Have a Dream. And people go, absolutely. What was that? Well, that was Martin Luther King. And it was really, it was the, 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 it was the theme of the civil rights movement. Absolutely, it was. You're absolutely right. How many times did he say I Have a Dream? I don't know. Eight. How many times did he say, let freedom reign? I don't know. 11. How many times was the word freedom used? It was the number one word used more than 20 times. Whether it was known or unknown, whether it was intuited, I don't know. But whoever used it understood that that word is the source code. When you tap it, and so whites and blacks march together because of that. Freedom is the key word. So when you understand the source code, you control the meaning. When you control the meaning, you control the individuals. The idea is to do that for the good, as Martin Luther King did, right? And so this is this is the work that I do at a very big level, but also at a personal level. So lots of my clients are the people who are doing extraordinarily well. They are people that other people look at and go you know, what do they need? But they come to me and go, you know, I've got three houses. I've got a Bentley. I've got this, that, the other thing, bought myself a new pair of tits, you know, whatever it might be. How come I'm still unsatisfied, unfulfilled? And it's because you've got to tap to the source code so you can find your purpose. And I do that work with them and it transforms everything about them transforms the way they bond with other people. It transforms what they're doing, why they're doing it. Um, And, you know, sometimes they change businesses. Often they don't. Uh, It just becomes more meaningful. So it's, it's a very, very, it's, it's my life's work. It's what I've been doing since I was a little kid, because when I was a little kid, I was driven insane by a single question. And that was, you know, living where I lived my aunt was very attractive, and she always dressed beautiful. She's the one who taught me style, uh, because my aunt, um, like we were all really poor, but my aunt said you got to have a piece, and I and I didn't know what it what she meant. Uh, and my aunt would go to Marks and Spencers, which is an English store, and she would buy reasonably good quality stuff you know, uh, whatever it was, a skirt or whatever, but she'd save up all of her money and she'd buy a Chanel top. And so she'd have a piece, which was the Chanel top, and then she'd pair it with things that were much cheaper, but it always looked like the whole outfit was expensive. So she taught me that, that whole thing around um, how to present that image. And I would look at her, and she was, she was very attractive and very well-dressed, and she would date these absolute losers you know, who would steal from her, who would beat her, you know, all the shit that would go down. And I'd see her and I would see my mother changing boyfriends when she was single. And I'd see my mom's friends doing the same thing. And I kept thinking, why do these smart people, you remember I'm a kid, right? Why do these smart adults keep doing dumb shit? That was like, so I became fixated on why do people do what they do, even when what they do doesn't make sense, and moreover, when it doesn't make sense to them looking back. And that was, that was the seeds of me searching out what is emotional source code. What is the emotional source code for individuals, for the collective, whether that's a group, a religion, a country, um, whatever it is. Like, what is the emotional source code? What is the anatomy of meaning that's been put in place that allows us to justify whatever it is we do? So that's the work I do. And every
0: person, every person has a
1: different source code, correct? Everybody has their own subjective source code, but then we have collective source code. So think of it as concentric circles. So in the middle is your subjective source code. Your subjective source code sits inside the familial source code. The familial source code sits inside the communal source code. The communal might be where you live, but it might be a faith, which sits inside a national source code. Mm right? So they're all layered in and the impact is on the level of relevance being given by the next circle to the circle outside of it. So if, so if, if I'm so connected to my family that I have to take on their values, now I've connected that one into my own. If my family is so connected to our religion, then that it becomes part of my own. If my religion is so connected to my country, then that becomes part of my own.
0: Well, that's interesting then. So in this work, let's just, let's say I'm a fanatical, whatever, pog, let's just make up a word. That's my religion. I'm a pog and, and I'm fanatical about it. I would, I would blow up buildings for my pogness. I was raised in a family of pogs, my whole town are pogs, you know, so how do you find an individual source code when I've been piled upon by that's all the identity I've ever known? How how does one find their self in that?
1: It's a great question. And there is, of course, a subjective personal one inside of that, and the only way you can find that is through the excavation of meaning through experiences. So by showing, holding up the mirror to say, what if you, this thing happened to you and, and you've said that this happened to you, um, because, and it was, it was okay. It was good because you're a pug. Right. And I go, yeah. Okay. So how would somebody not a pug look at that? How would they understand that? So I'll give you an, I'll give you an example. I think this is really interesting. Um, many years ago, I was working with a lady, Maureen. She is a movie producer and uh, we were talking and she is a little younger than me, but at the time she was late thirties and uh, we're talking and she's telling me about her childhood and, and she, you know, talking about being of an Irish family and, you know, so we're getting all the background. Okay, cool. And, and then she starts telling me about being beaten as a child. Right. And so part of part of the way that you identify your source code is this i'm going to give everybody this powerful clue is begin to question the word normal what have you made normal what is it you decided was normal so she was, she said to me, you know, it was just normal. My dad hit me, but that was normal. That was that. And she then comes the justifications. That was the generation that was, you know, we were Irish. It was part of the Irish thing. It was the generation. It was what happened. And I said, I, I grew up with a lot of Irish people. I don't know that it's true about all the Irish people I knew, but okay. Um, and I said, and it's, do you think it's generational? she's like, yeah. And I said, what if it's not? What if it's not generational? What if it's not Irish? What if it's something else altogether? And she's like, well, it is. Well, about, we were working together for a while, and a couple of months later, I guess it was, I was at a party. um, You know, not a crazy party, just a house party. And I'm at this house party, and Maureen's there. Just was by coincidence, she was there. Uh, oh, Hey Maureen. And she's like, Hey, you know, we I chat briefly and then I go about my things and I'm talking to people and she's talking to people. And then I walk past the kitchen and she's in the kitchen with a bunch of women and they're all standing around having a drink and they're all sort of standing in a circle and co- having a conversation about what I don't know. Right. Yep. But I can see this. So then I say, um, Oh, or right, You know, I go back in and I'm having my conversation and I happen to glance and I suddenly see her fly out of the front door and she runs. So I natural concern. I run after her. I'm like, are you okay? And she's crying. She goes, I'm not. And I go, can I, is there anything I can do? She goes, no, uh, not now. I can't talk. I go, okay. You know where I am. You need, if you need me. Okay. She goes, yeah. So she comes in for a next session and I say, you know, we need to talk about what happened. I know it wasn't inside of this session, but clearly it was impacting you. So let's talk about it. She goes, we were all standing in the kitchen I think it was like seven or eight women. She said, and we were talking about our parents. And one of the ladies said, yeah, my mother would say my name and she would say my whole name. And that was enough. I knew I was in trouble. And another woman said, um, with me, it was my father. He would just look at me. There was a look. And I knew that look meant shut up. And it went around all these different versions of how these parents would. And um, one of the girls said um, that her father would look at her and he would raise his hand. And she said, he never hit me. Never once did he hit me, but he would raise his hand, which meant you could get hit. Right. And she goes, that was enough. And it got to Maureen. And she couldn't speak. She ran out because she suddenly realized here's a consensus of women her age. And she was the only one who was beaten with a belt by her father on a bare backside, which I explained to her has got nothing to do with punishing you and everything to do with humiliation, everything to do with power and potentially even sexual. But it's got nothing to do with punishing you. And she suddenly realized that she'd normalized something that was not only abusive, but incredibly dysfunctional, but she'd normalized it by making it part of uh, a generation, which is a community, right? By, uh, uh, by being Irish, which is another community, uh, then part of the family. And so she normalized it. So her source code became normal in her brain, but it wasn't normal. And your source code gives you your emotional logic, And your emotional logic says two plus two equals a giraffe Mm -hmm. or equals rage or equals sadness or equals sexuality or equals, you know, whatever it is. And all it means is there's a rationale in your brain that doesn't make sense to anybody else, but you've rationalized it based on your source code. Wow. That's incredibly powerful. It's powerful work to do. I love the work, but you know, the people I do it with it's, insanely transformational. Transformational. What was your aha
0: moment though? I mean, how did you, this is not, I mean, I get it. We, we dig down into layers and all that kind of stuff, but this seems very specific. It is. What was your aha moment of like, this is the thing. This is the thing that will change humanity.
1: Um, well, you know, we talked about at the beginning that I'd been on the spiritual path Mm -hmm. and, um, got really sick of meeting spiritual people who couldn't get their shit together I couldn't hold a relationship couldn't make any money couldn't do well so I was like okay so I started studying psychology and jungian psychology um and absolutely adored that still adore it um but I became a therapist and we're like people just want to piss moan and whine like this is no good it's not better than, than the, you know, the, the spiritual dingalings. So I got spiritual dingalings and now I've got piss and whiners. Forget that. So I started studying the psychology of excellence, which today is called leadership. And I'll start looking at people who were incredibly successful. And there, I met a bunch of soulless individuals. Uh, and that's not true. I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying that's who I met. Right? there were people who was kind of emotionally devoid void and and spiritually void and were just driven. You know they were golden geckos of the world trying to get more and more success. And I went, well, this you know th- this isn't it. There's got to be a way that these things come together in eighty three. Um, I stumbled into quantum physics, as I talked about earlier. and,
0: and I love that sentence, by the way. I stumbled what? into quantum physics. It's just a I great did. sentence. <laughs> uh,
1: in a secondhand bookstore, a book literally fell on my foot. And I could read every other page because one page was in mathematical equations, which I didn't understand. Not that I do anymore. Uh, I do now. Um, and the other side was in English. Even though it was academic English, I could read it.
0: A book so fell on your foot just randomly? Yeah.
1: Well, I went up to get a book. I was like, "What's that?" and pull, And another book fell out, and I never even took the other book out. I pushed the book back, and that was so it was clearly for me, mm-hmm. yeah exactly. Um, and so then I started studying the quantum physics, and then um, in understanding the spiritual side, the psychological side, the driver side, um, now I started thinking about this larger realm of quantum physics and how um Everything is nothing and nothing is everything and everything is expansive, which quantum physics for me was a was a scientific way to understand a lot of the spiritual teachings I'd had. It suddenly uh, became part of the same thing. Um, and then looking at what I became fascinated with stress, I was very stressed all the time. And I wanted to understand stress, what makes people stressed. And what was fascinating for me was my business partner, Phil, uh, would not get stressed at all about the things I got stressed about. And suddenly working with him as my business partner, I suddenly realized that stress was subjective because I'd have fights with him. Why aren't you upset about this? He goes, because it don't matter. Like, you know, and I'd be like, I I am right. (laughs) This does matter. And so it became, you know, Totally in the be right mode and realized in my early twenties there that I'm like, damn, why am he he not stressed? So I started looking at that. And so I started the very early things, early understanding of uh, neuroscience and neurochemistry and started to really inquire about how neurochemicals work and wanted to like, nobody was really talking about cortisol, Mm -hmm. but I, you know, I was reading about neurosurgery that had gone on in Canada um, I was reading, uh, under Wilder Penfield that was breaking, breaking science. Um, then started studying, uh, nutraceuticals and how certain, uh, supplements you could take would pass the blood brain barrier and could change cortisol levels. And so I became obsessed with learning all that. And, and by the way, in all that, I'm still in therapy. i You know, so I started in, put myself in therapy at 19 and I kept going. So I'm like, certain things are just not working about this process. And, and it's because it's, they were using generics with me. Well, this means that, no, it doesn't, don't mean that to me at all. And they thought I was being a smart ass. And I remember sitting with a therapist and saying, I hope you're really good. And she goes, why? I said, because I'm really good. And she goes, what do you mean? I said, I'm a therapist. I studied all these different things and I can run circles around most therapists. I need you to be better than me because we need to find out what's subjectively driving me. And she, and, and I went to her because she was a feminist and I said, and i got shit with women clearly. So, you know, I'm not holding on to good relationships. So, you know, and she came at me hard, but she made me look at my subjective drivers. And from that, I suddenly realized, oh, okay, there are, generalizations and you can put people into those categories but as you get to that you have to then go subjective and that was when i went oh there's a code what is the code that was how it's and so that was the moment
0: wow incredible
1: Mm
0: -hmm. i could seriously talk to you for hours on end tell people how they can find you
1: thank you Uh, You can find me, just go to DovBaron.com. That's my website. That's the main site. Uh, If you Google my name, DovBaron.com or DovBaron, Baron, you'll find lots. I've got two podcasts. One is called Leadership and Loyalty, obviously focuses on leadership. The other one is called Curiosity Bites, um, where I interview people like Susan Ruth and uh, right-wing leaders and... uh, neuroscientists and physicists and theologians and all kinds of weird and wonderful people, economists. It's a delicious conversations. That's how I describe them. Uh, you can find those podcasts there. I have a YouTube channel under my name, Dov Brown Leadership, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, all those kinds of places. But the easiest way to find me, write me an email, D O V at dot com. everybody thinks I'm mad for giving my email out but I give it out if I can help you I'm here on the planet to serve If I can help you reach out to me I work with companies I work with organizations I work with nations um but I work with individuals who who've probably been you know they've had four coaches they've had a couple of therapists they they, they just notice something more but they don't know how to get to it I'm that guy it's awesome I'm glad you're on the planet. Thank you. I'm glad you are too. <laughs> I'll put links
0: for everybody too on HeyHumanPodcast.com where you just go to one spot too. If you forget anything, like, you know, you know, you can go there and get all the sure. info. Dove, you are awesome. Thank you for your time. We should do this again.
1: Absolutely. It was delicious. Um, Thank yeah, you. Yeah,
0: I really, I love it. Um, there's just
1: so much to talk about. Thank you, everybody. I really appreciate you tuning in. And hey, listen, I have podcasts, so I know what it's like. It's not a one-way street. Don't hold the information. Get out there. Share this podcast with everybody else. If you got something out of it, then somebody else is probably going to get something out of it. But more than that, write to Susan and tell her what you got out of it. In fact, go on wherever you're listening to rate, review, subscribe, and then share the show with everybody, you know, because listen, there's a lot of work goes into these things and you know, it's kind of one way. And we feel like, yeah, does anybody benefit? We want you to. And the only way we're going to know that is by you letting us know. So write to Susan, tell her what you got out of the show. You can tell me what you got out of it. If I can help you, you can write to me, but subscribe. Review, rate, and share it out with others. It's important. It makes a difference. Don't hold. This is an abundant universe. So share it out.
0: Amen. Thanks, Dev. I appreciate that. That Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. (laughs) Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Happy New Year.